Hello listeners, it's about half five in the morning and I'm walking through a woods just outside Nottingham and Ellie and I have come out to record the dawn chorus. And I know this is a gardening podcast and uh, you know if you're into photography or spotting wildlife then a garden is a, a fantastic place to look. But certainly for recording audio, sadly, noise pollution in the city is just so bad that you can't get a clean recording. So that's why I've come out to the woods. And uh, after I finish this little introduction, if I've got any good audio, I'll play you a little snippet. Now, we've said on a previous podcast that this episode is going to be our first ever guest interview, and that's going to be with Gareth Richards from the Royal Horticultural Society. I'll introduce him in just a minute. But before that, I was listening back to the last episode that we recorded, and I realised that I chucked in a load of horticultural jargon. And this is something we really want to avoid on this podcast, because if you don't know what a term means, you just don't know. And I certainly can think back to the time I first started gardening. Ellie will agree with me here and say... You know, other gardeners were just chucking this terminology around without really explaining what they were talking about. And it it can be quite intimidating because you feel like you're not on the same level. You don't really understand what people are talking about. And it's taken us years to to understand all these terms. But like I say, there's no there's no reason you should know what we mean unless we've explained it. So we use the terms annual, biennial and perennial. And this simply describes the life cycles of some different plants. Annuals germinate from seed and they only live for one year. So they'll grow up, they'll flower, set seed, and then once they've um, propagated the next generation, they simply die down naturally. And that is how they have evolved to grow. Once they've flowered, gardeners generally dig them out and compost them and then sow the same seed the following year for the next year's display. Perennials, on the other hand, live year after year. And some perennials might only be short-lived. They could survive three or four years. Others, like an oak tree, for instance, might survive a thousand years or more. That completely depends on the species, but the term perennial simply means a plant that will survive year after year. In the middle, we've got biennials, Now, as I'm walking through the woods, I can see a classic biennial of the British countryside, and that is the foxglove. And what biennials do is they germinate from seed in one year, they put up a lot of leafy growth, they build up energy, they photosynthesise, they might create a a thick taproot, and then they overwinter in some way, the leaves might die down, or they could be evergreen. But then in the second year, they send up their flowers. And then just like annuals, they'll flower, set seed, and then die off. So if you're wondering why you've got foxgloves in your garden and they only seem to flower half the time, that's because half of them are only one year old. And the good thing with foxgloves, of course, is that if you've got a load of these one-year-old seedlings, then you can dig them up, transplant them around the garden to where you want the flowers the following year, um, give them a good watering in, and then they'll give you a display where you actually want them the next summer. Right, so on to our interview. Gareth studied horticulture at Rittle College. He then went on to work for some nurseries. He worked for a private estate in the south of France. And then as a runner and finally a horticultural researcher for the ITV and for BBC, particularly on Gardener's World. But more recently, he's been the RHS Digital Features Editor, which means that he's responsible for a lot of the content that they put up online, but also for the RHS's own podcast, which I highly, highly recommend listening to. But although that's a bit of a desk-based job, he is truly a green-fingered man, an absolute gardening genius, and uh, he's the person we always go to when we don't know, don't know what a plant is. And certainly we would have struggled our first couple of years when we were going around gardens before we really knew what we were doing. 
um, if we couldn't have sent him picture messages every two minutes saying what's this what's this <laughs> uh, thankfully that's calmed down a bit now um, but even as you're here um, he's still introducing us to new plants including on his allotment the interview was on his allotment in Peterborough recorded about a month ago now uh, so I'm sure it's a bit more lush than it was then but even uh, back in the beginning of April you could see the signs of growth and it was looking beautiful and it's a it's a really stunning stunning space he's put a lot of effort into making it beautiful for him for the wildlife and also uh, a wonderful space for cropping homegrown fruit and veg and I can say that one of the main pleasures of visiting Gareth in the summer is of course to hang out with him but mainly for his summer pudding coming straight from his current bushes so let's travel back in time join Gareth on his allotment and just before we do let's have a, a quick listen to the sound of the dawn chorus here at Ploughman Wood Hello and welcome back to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ben. And me, Ellie. And our special guest for this episode, Gareth Richards. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. <laughs> yeah, we've come to Peterborough to uh, visit Gareth, interview you about all your allotment advice in and the sun. knowledge in the sun, and then we're off down the pub later. Yeah, bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> we also wanted to say in the upcoming episode, we're going to be talking about your new book as well. Excellent. So do you yeah, want to introduce wait. that? It's called Do Bees Need Weeds? Yep, do bees need weeds? And it's the answer to more than 100 different wildlife gardening questions. That one came out in autumn. It's co-authored with Holly Farrell. It's quite a well-known uh, gardening author. And then I've got another one coming out in June, which is RHS Weeds, The Beauty and Uses of 50 Vagabond Plants. Vagabonds? Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, I like that idea. And that was so much fun to write, to kind of discover the kind of amazing plants that are just beneath our feet that we kind of we kind of discard and we we don't appreciate but actually they have some really amazing powers and properties yeah i think uh, there's a good quote i can't remember who said it but the the notion that a plant is a weed is just the biggest barrier to stopping us appreciating it and when you actually remove that label and take a closer look like celandines they're absolutely gorgeous and they're such a such a lovely part of springtime they they really kind of mark a change in the change in the season they're great for bees a lovely native pretty wildflower and yet because they they're a little bit too enthusiastic sometimes in some people's gardens we call them a weed and we we just become blind to their charms yeah, yeah it's I mean, funny i think I think gardeners maybe just like the challenge of difficult to grow things. Yeah. And then oh, yeah. there's a status attached to it. Yeah, I said that when I was um, writing about, do you know Herb Robert? If that was some rare little tender Australasian thing, it would be like 12 quid a pot. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, people would people would go nuts for it because it's it's native and it grows quite easily. People just people just weed it out. It's so actually, true. Yeah. It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, even it. when oh. we started gardening... Uh, when you do some of the gardening courses they teach you the normal weeds mm. so even when we first started gardening I was weeding Herb Robert out from everywhere yeah. but now I just leave it in especially in a herbaceous border yeah. because it's like a free ground cover plant yeah. you know, exactly. and it just it's quite it's actually quite tidy uh, it doesn't swamp anything. No, no, okay. it's not so, going to. You know, if it does come too much, it's so easy to weed out if you need to. But it's got such a beautiful flower. Mm. Yeah. And if you grow it with like hardy geraniums, which it's related to, mm-hmm. like the cultivated ones, like Roseanne or something, actually, that's a really, really nice combination. Yeah, yeah I lovely. like the red leaves on it as well. I just think mm. it's really, it's really pretty, and it can contrast with other things in in your garden that you've planted up. You're going to do a, a walk around the allotment later yep. with Ellie. and uh, Very much look forward to that. Yeah, talk about everything that you've been growing. Just as an introduction though, give us your top three tips for allotment ears and what they can do for wildlife. Okay, so I think tip number one would be to grow green manures. 
So by that, I mean a crop that you sow. When you've got a little bit of spare ground, just pop a green manure on there. Something like you can grow um, caliente mustard, you can grow phacelia, you can grow red clover. All of those things, they are brilliant because you can dig them in, you get free free fertilizer so it actually increases your um or free organic matter you don't have to buy compost and it's really good for the soil wildlife and if you let some of them flower it's really really good for pollinating insects oh, yeah we've brilliant. seen the facelia yeah. on the allotment mm. before yeah. and it's just glorious yeah isn't and, it? It, and you can hear it before you see it because the bees are just all over it's amazing yeah. i think the second one would be use slug pellets appropriately if at all because you see it time and time again. People use them like they're a mulch and the soil oh, looks blue. Right. Yeah. And that is so bad on so many levels. If you're using the um, metaldehyde ones... Which, which were, were banned and then came back, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, that's... I think, did they come back because of farming? Or just is yeah, because of lobbying. Yeah. Lots of pressure, yeah, yeah. Which is really annoying because that metaldehyde used to be used as a fuel for like camping stoves. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's not nice stuff and it leaks into watercourses. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you're you're not just killing wildlife. So if anything eats a slug that's been poisoned with a metaldehyde pellet, it will be poisoned. But you're also creating environmental damage on a wider scale. So there are other ones. There's ones with ferric phosphate in, which are much, much less toxic. But people still use far too many of them. You know, you're wasting money and you're doing environmental damage. So you you just want to sprinkle them around very thinly. Mm -hmm. They're a bait. They're not they're not a mulch. They're not a barrier. Just just scatter them very, very lightly. I've heard like three pellets per plant just dotted around yeah. and that, as an actual yeah. quantity which is really few and yeah. we, we've seen people use it like oh, you say handfuls. like sweets just yeah. just throwing it on the floor yeah yeah but ideally use nematodes and use other ways of trying to yeah. discourage slugs like tidying up um any kind of like dead and dying material so for example in the greenhouse i've got raised beds and there's a little bit of space behind the raised beds where all kind of dead leaves and stuff can accumulate. I always make sure that I keep that nice and clean because yeah. there's less places for the slugs to hide. Yeah, yeah. great tip. Um, yeah, and I suppose number three, I, you will say that I'm fixated on pollinators, but um, I think it's for good reason because they're so important, is to maybe let some of your veg flower if if things are going over a little bit. Like now we're in mid-April, I've got a few kale plants that are going to flower. Let them flower, yeah. Because you can save your own seed, which is great because you're not you're not having to buy more seed and there's less less environmental impact that way. But also, a lot of vegetables are really really good for pollinating insects. Alliums, onions, they're the same thing. Well, and you, you, know? you buy cultivated yeah. varieties yeah, we do. as well. <laughs> we do, and for a small and fortune as exactly. well. Exactly, and let a few centers. of the onion plants actually flower, and you get these lovely purple drumstick flowers. that bumblebees go nuts for them do you grow parsnips as well and and do that i don't them? like parsnips oh I, well there you go didn't well, no, know that if you no, go for dinner yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> do you know what i've actually planted parsnips when i was gardening in france we did this prairie garden and um so it was all quite young plants getting established and i went to the supermarket and bought parsnips and just popped a few parsnips through and they're amazing because by midsummer they had these six foot flower stems that looked absolutely incredible they're this beautiful kind of sulfury yellow green color and again the pollinators love them and they're quite sort of statuesque and they're in a bellifera are they yeah yeah Yeah. so related to carrots fennel hogweed cow parsley parsley yeah yeah beautiful which are i mean all the um umbellifera are really loved by hoverflies in Mm. particular aren't they Mm because they've got the nice sort of they they can land easily on the top it's a perfect open landing pad Yeah. yeah Yeah, brilliant. Excellent. So I think you guys are going to go for a a walk around the allotment now. We are, yes. So thanks, Gareth. Cheers, thank you. So shall we go on a little tour of your allotment? Yep, let's do it. Fab. Now, you might be able to hear in this section, but there's some very hungry-looking hens looking up at me. Yes, they're, uh, they're quite keen for us to give them some corn, but I think it's a little bit early. They, they seem a bit sleepy. Yeah, I think I might <laughs> chuck some weeds in there first, get them doing some good. Because that's one <laughs> of the nice... do the work for you, huh? Well, exactly. I think that's one of the nicest things about having chickens on an allotment, because you feed them weeds and they turn weeds and slugs and all the different bugs into beautiful eggs. Oh, and it's quite a nice feeling. Yes, and we've actually been able to sample some of your hen's eggs, so I can vouch for that. Do they bite? Yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
Yeah, so we've got a lot of wood chip at the moment. Mm, I can see Cause, that. Because, yeah, because I've got bees, I, I love to see the wildflowers. And I've got things like Linaria, which is a brilliant, um, brilliant bee plant. And I had lots of chicory that mm-hmm. self-sowed and various other things. Perfect. Um, but yeah, what happened was last year, the balance kind of tipped. I had lots of wild stuff. I had lots of um, wildflowers for the bees. But then in amongst it all the ground elder and the cooch grass yeah. grew and I ju- it just tipped into being yeah. like absolutely weedy so what I've done is I've put lots of layers of cardboard great tip if you want to put cardboard on an allotment go to a bike shop oh yes because the best thing is they have these huge cardboard yeah. boxes so it doesn't they don't flap have, around doesn't flap around you're not mm-hmm. laying lots of tiny little bits and they're blowing everywhere in the wind you have nice big chunks of it and they tend not to have tape on either because the thing when you put uh a lot of normal cardboard boxes on you're digging up tape yeah in the years to come we have that in our compost heap it's so it's, easy to miss yeah. and then you, you come to spread beautiful compost and then you've got these and little bits all these of plastic little worms ah! of tape coming out yeah. the soil you think no this is not what i want to be doing no so yeah there's loads of um cardboard from the bike shop and then sort of Brilliant. three four five six inches of, of wood chip oh a strawberry, patch. strawberry patch yeah these need these need dividing um I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to just pull them apart because what happens is they, the, um, the runners go everywhere and if you're not really on it, you end up with this strawberry patch that's too, that's too dense because mm. they say you should plant strawberries about a foot apart, yeah. sometimes even 18 inches. And when you've got these tiny little strawberry plants, you're putting them into bare soil and you think this is mental, I'm going to yeah. put more in. But obviously what happens is the, the strawberry plants become like these little bushes and mm. they actually do need that space because if they're too close together... The fruit gets shaded. Yeah, and doesn't, doesn't ripen. ripen as well. Yeah, and it's a haven for slugs and things. So you know, you you do want to space them out. We always encourage people to put in things like strawberries mm. and raspberries, but just because they're so easy and they're almost they like the best weeds you can have. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, to have too many strawberries, you can see they've gone oh, through yeah. into the raspberry patch, and it's yeah. just. But well, it's I mean, great ground cover, isn't it? Isn't well? it just with yeah. uh, with a yield? Even well, better. funnily enough, I had um, I've got these wild strawberries over here. Mm. And it's a variety called Fontaine, which is really, really pretty. It's a commercially developed one, but they're really quite invasive. Yes. And they've invaded my asparagus patch. But I'm kind of, I'm okay You're with okay that. You're okay with it. Because the strawberries aren't particularly tall. They're not particularly yeah. demanding. So I think they can kind of quite happily coexist. And you can just see I can. the first spears oh. of asparagus. Come on. Yes. Um, but yeah, they did go absolutely bonkers. And it went all over this. And I thought, no, I'm going <laughs> to stop you now with some, <laughs> with some cardboard and wood chips. And what is this? this? These are some interesting looking yeah, plants. Yeah, these are something a bit different. And something I read about in the newspaper a few years ago, it's called a Chilean guava. Ah, yes. And sometimes these kind of new things can be a little bit a little bit of flash in the pan, but these actually were um, Queen Victoria's favourite fruit. Yeah. And they are delicious. If, if you can't grow blueberries, try these. Or even if you can grow blueberries, try these because they're amazing. They have, um, they fruit in sort of the autumn time. And they look, they look like sort of pinky red blueberries, but the taste is amazing. It's kind of slightly piney, slightly strawberry, mm. pineapple. They're gorgeous. Do you get good yield from them You as do. Well? They're incredible. They're self-fertile, so you only need one plant. Well, the thing that they do need is a bit of sun to ripen the fruit. Which today we have, thankfully. Today we have, yeah. yes. I mean, they'll tolerate a bit of shade. They have lovely scented flowers in May. Really good for the bees got some lovely videos of bumblebees just going nuts into Aww. the flowers with these huge pollen sacks yeah. um, on their legs and it's just yeah, fabulous gen- genuinely a lovely thing they look a little bit um look a little bit scratchy now but they're gonna they're gonna really fill out over the next few years you can even use them as a hedge and so you've got a greenhouse got a greenhouse on yep. your allotment yeah, what that was, a, that was an absolute steal. And if anyone's um, looking to set up on a budget, go to eBay and just buy a second-hand one. They, the only problem with, with doing that is that they take a while. You, you take it down and you put it up. Yeah. But this is a 8-foot by 10-foot greenhouse, and I got it for under 100 quid. That is an absolute and, bargain. You know, it's gonna, and it's, it's gonna actually s- glass. It's not one of yeah. those plasticky, no, will blow away in exactly. the first gust of wind. Exactly. You know, every part of this is mm. um, recyclable mm. or, and repairable. I mean, it smells delicious in here. I wish everyone could smell this. <laughs> the green, and it's so oh. verdant. And there's daffodils and salad, and oh, it's just wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's pretty productive. And I think that's something that people forget, is that greenhouses aren't just for summer. 
Yeah. Actually, I think the greenhouse is as valuable in the autumn, spring and winter as it is in the summer. Yeah. And you've got freesias in here. Yeah. Is that, that's obviously what I can smell, isn't it? Yeah. I imagine. Freesias and, and um, actually these are scented as well. It's a narcissus called geranium. Um, mm, yeah, oh the freesias God, are great. so Isn't it lovely? Wow. And they are just just about hard enough to live under, under unheated glass. Right. And what you tend to do is you buy them as bulbs in spring. They've been treated so they will flower in the summer. But then what they really want to do is flower now in the springtime. Oh, I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, they're South African native and they're, yeah. they're a South African spring flower. And a bit of glass gives them just enough heat to, to survive. I mean, they were grown a lot in Guernsey. Mm. So that gives you an idea, you know, un, unheated glass on Guernsey traditionally. But yeah, but, so they do a timeshare with the tomatoes. They stay there the whole time. And they kind of disappear as the tomatoes go in. Oh, wow. And then they grow yeah. over the winter. You've considered everything. Mm. Do well, you... you want to make it work as hard as possible for you. Yeah, Once you've bothered to put it up. But do you think it's easy to get bogged down in the detail of how and when and timings of these things? Do you find Absolutely. it better just to kind of feel for it and get to know? Do you know, I think that's such a good point because, yeah, I could I could have totally beaten myself up the fact that I didn't sow all right. my salads when I was supposed to and all of this. Yeah. Um, but actually, the thing that gardening has taught me over, over time is you just just learn to be a bit intuitive and kind of recognise what's going on. Yeah. For example, I've got a nice crop of um, miner's lettuce, Claytonia. Mm. I didn't sow that. <laughs> <laughs> you stole it. No, <laughs> that's from, um, that's weed, weed seed that was in the compost oh. um, that I put on here. It's yeah. from a previous year's crop okay. and it's just, it's just sown itself. But I but was able it. to recognise it yeah. and I thought, do you know what? I've forgotten to sow stuff but nature's kind of come and nature's <laughs> given me a helping hand. You're I, not going to starve. No, exactly. Well, I, won't, I might be hungry, but I wouldn't get scurvy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then also, we, I've only just weeded it out. I had a lot of uh, a weed called hairy bittercress in here, Yeah. which is beautiful. It's a real kind of unsung hero of our sort of wild foods. Yeah. It's quite a distinctive sort of rosette plant with lots of... Um, it's almost like a, a fern, but if you replace the fern leaves with little kind of circles yeah. going up the stem. Very, it is very pretty. And yeah. it, I, what I'm surprised about is when you do miss a bit in a garden, it can get quite big, quite a Oh, yeah, get plant. up to... Well, there's two. There's hairy bittercress and there's um, wavy bittercress. Oh, and wavy bittercress is that the bigger looks one? the same, but it's a little bit bigger. Can you eat that one yes, as well? Yes, you can. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll have to yeah. bag a bit they're all from next the, time. They're all from the cabbage family. Yeah. And um, so they have that kind of rockety pepperiness and they're yeah. really really good if you use them just like cress mm -hmm. and you put them in an egg sandwich or um with beef if you're if you eat meat or um on a cheese sandwich something like yeah. that anywhere anywhere you might use um anywhere you might use cress or rocket yeah it's a sort of a wild homegrown alternative cool yeah i feel like you've struck a balance between cultivation and foraging on your allotment which is really nice <laughs> laziness i think <laughs> making the most of your own laziness i guess where where else should we go is this amaranth no no that What's... is red auric Ooh. i know that's slightly annoying because it shouldn't it? really be seeding through how much wood chip that's... have we got here i know it's that's quite impressive impre that is oh, what a tough look plant. at that look at that you can see that yeah. amazing mycelium yeah. just developing wow feel how moist yeah. the soil is and it hasn't rained for what and it hasn't rained for two ages. months <laughs> yeah like... yeah i mean this yeah. is a it is edible but it's one of those things that's edible but it's not really delicious okay. and i sometimes put it on salads to add a bit of color yeah red auric it's called atriplex hortensis rubra i think it's got a similar feeling leaf to something like fat hen which yeah, is it's in the same family oh it is mm. okay and i i think fat hen is delicious really i do yeah i you, <laughs> you obviously don't agree with me maybe i keep the, trying to like it it's the I'm, texture of it I'm, I, well, I'm a bit tight so maybe mm. i just get blinded by the fact that it's free when i'm yeah. digging it up <laughs> mm, this is wonderful yum, yum. The, yeah the uh, money savings make it taste all the sweeter <laughs> yeah um yeah so i, I feel bad walking on your beds no Do no, you no. Know that's, that okay? but that's that's the beauty of it you've got wood chip and it protects the soil so of course for example Spreading if you go down weight. to kew gardens you'll see that they have big beds of wood chip all around the trees um, because if you're just trampling on the soil yeah. directly, yes, you are compacting it and that's damaging those fine surface roots. 
but the wood chip will just spread your weight and will protect the soil underneath it so it's absolutely fine yeah so um, i've just left this one little island because i i know i'm such a hippie at heart but i saw i've got phacelia i've got some self-sown parsley and i've got red dead dead nettle it's actually a really lovely combination and the red it's, dead nettle is fantastic for bees they absolutely, absolutely love it don't yeah. they yeah so i was just like i just felt a little bit i felt a little bit uh cruel because i was i was mulching out all of this sort of self-sown stuff and i thought no i'll just leave them a little bit and look there's a oh no it's gone was it a cardaby oh yes i think you're right yeah. oh no it, yeah look that's on dead yes yeah it that's is. on red dead nettle look just on the path no i think that's a hairy-footed flower bee it's got like the little mustache on the front you know, yeah i think so a male Look, look, there's two, there's two different yeah, species on look, it now. That's the female. The black one is the female, and this is the male. Yeah, oh, wow. That's hairy-footed, and he's chasing her. Oh, fantastic. They like to sneak up on the women. It's a bit dark. <laughs> and I've seen lots of videos. I think we mentioned this in the last episode, but um, or in an episode. But, yeah, they like to sort of, I don't know, sneak up on the females, and the females quite often kick them away. They're like, nah, I'm not in the mood. Wow. It's quite funny. <laughs> um... <laughs> Because that's yeah. yeah, and that's one thing. So in your allotment, I'm always blown away by the sheer beauty of it as well. So you oh, obviously you. think about that side of things, well, or does it just come with the fact that it's a really productive space? And I think we're sort of we've evolved to see that as a beautiful that. thing. Yeah, it's interesting, yeah, because if you have like stuff in nice, neat lines, then we do perceive that as beautiful mm. because it's ordered, and the human eye craves order. But I think um, I think it's important that it looks nice because. Mm the best way to be an allotment here I think is to be there really regularly that's why having chickens helps because mm. you always have to come down to feed them and then you just notice one little thing mm. that needs watering or you just pull out a weed or some something but it's like it's like anything it's like going to the gym you only really get the benefit if you do it regularly yeah getting fitness or or anything it but really yeah, is I, a way of life for you this, oh, this place isn't it I mean yeah. not it's not regimented I don't feel like you no. ever feel pressured to come but you actually want no, to come you, and that's yeah, the trick absolutely think, there's anything. always there's always something in flower that's why I love having the greenhouse and grow cut flowers and things like that you know a load of alliums from the pound shop for example yeah. that you know they just cost absolute peanuts but they give yeah. so much joy and the fact that you can there's always a bunch of flowers you can give to someone so if any of your friends are just feeling yeah. a bit down you can give oh, them I a look bunch forward of flowers to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we i'll be sure some... to mention it in the summer <laughs> Well, we can pick some um, we can pick some narcissus from the Aww. greenhouse if you like. I don't think I don't think it would survive our um, pub trip this afternoon, oh, personally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a very sad sight at the end. Yeah, but yeah, to me, it has to be somewhere that um, that invites you, and that's why you know it's important I think to have somewhere to sit and enjoy it so when I got down here one of the first things I did was to build a deck out of pallets yeah put some um, put some garden chairs in because yeah at the end of the day when you finish your digging or, or whatever you're doing you need to just yeah. sit here and enjoy it and yeah appreciate it shall we meet your bees yes let's do it I've got a um, little wild bee hotel as well I'll oh, show you great. on the way and any success yes. nesting yeah, no, this is quite exciting. So, um, so we had a log that was um, from, from an old cherry tree that got cut down. Mm-hmm. And I've drilled lots of different size holes. So, you know, when you get a drill set, you have all the different, yeah. all the different um, drill bits. So you basically use all of them and drill lots of different, hole, different size yeah. holes because different species will, will appreciate different sizes. Yeah. And they ignored it for a year. And I thought, why the hell have I done this? And then last year, suddenly, you can see about half the holes have been stuffed they with mud. They have, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, so that's really cool. And you can see some of them have hatched, but yeah. also you can see the holes where cuckoo bees have gone in. Oh. Because there's quite a lot of species of cuckoo bees that will parasitise yeah. the uh, eggs of solitary bees as well. But, you know, that's all part of nature. It is. But the one, one tip I would say from this is don't put a roof on it. Yeah, you've you've made like a it's like a hinged roof over yeah, the top. Why why would you not do that? It's a corner of an old raised bed, and it looks really really cute. But spiders live in the top, and they and they sometimes <laughs> web over the they web over the front, and then the bees get caught in the web. Oh, 
what's yeah. clever on the spider's it's part. It's very clever on the spider's <laughs> part, but yeah, so uh, so don't get too cute when okay. you're uh, making a bee <laughs> Just because it looks good to us doesn't necessarily exactly. make it good for the bees. Exactly. Yeah, I think we, uh, we are going to talk in more detail about bee hotels in in a future episode but yeah you do have to make sure the weather can't get in that's that's an important thing but i guess you could just avoid that by tilting it slightly yeah, away from the exactly. weather and positioning it exactly that's... i think you want to position it sort of facing south um so it so it, so it gets some warmth yeah particularly uh in the spring as, as things are hatching do you recognize this plant oh goodness no you love this to is, test me don't i know you? but this it's really hard because you very rarely see it see it in the uk this is a manuka plant as in oh, manuka honey. Of course, yes. Yeah, so for your called, bees. Um, yeah, Leptospermum scaparium. Nice. And it looks a bit. It looks a bit like a giant thyme bush on it steroids. Does, doesn't yeah. It does. Yeah. Does this mean that when you next give me some of your delicious homemade honey, that you're going to charge me nine ninety nine <laughs> for a jar of it? <laughs> yeah, I couldn't exactly call it manuka. I think I need about four hundred plants for okay, that. Okay, fine. You, know, you need a manuka <laughs> grove. But there will definitely be some manuka in it. <laughs> and yeah, it's um, it, it as I say, it looks like a. Uh, looks like a giant thyme bush but it has these lovely lovely uh, white flowers in a few months time you can just see the buds coming lovely and they're just about hardy really good by the sea and in sort of southern england you've got it in, in a, a really warm, sheltered spot yeah it's there. a really sheltered spot so and actually it's, well, it's next to a water butt and i'm wondering whether that provides a bit of extra warmth because obviously when the water just yeah, longer in the season so when it's yeah. warmed up over the summer it might actually yeah. Summer. actually yeah that's a good point because that will absorb lots of warmth in the day yeah, yeah exactly and then uh, just I, keep it i don't think it's a standard piece of gardening advice <laughs> no. next to a giant black water butt <laughs> <laughs> but yeah probably i think what also helps is that it's protected from the north and the east winds where yes, it is yes um and again quite free draining soil we're now walking into um the wilder the half wild of bit, your allotment. Yeah. So we've been through all the raised beds with yeah, all the wood chip all, and the so very all... productive area. But we're now at the back where you've planted a row of willow, willows, beautiful different coloured stems. Yes. I love that. Yeah, I just shoved these in like pencil thickness yes. uh, cuttings. That's all. So that's all you need to do in the middle in winter. Chop, chop bits off like pencils and just bung them in, and they will grow. And yeah. this is about five years old now, and they've grown. I think that's i think that's yeah that's a year's growth so they will put on wow. six feet in a year and give you lots at of at least um, that's yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. mad it's a bit mental isn't Are it you, what was the the reason is this for wildlife is it for yeah. you a bit of both it's a bit of both so they have catkins mm. which are a really good source of pollen mm-hmm. for early flying bees yeah and pollen's important for bees because it contains protein and that's what they need when they're rearing the young yeah so really really good to have lots of plants with abundant pollen early in the year but also when i chop them down so i will i will chop all the growth off these probably this week actually now the catkins have faded yeah and this this um whippy wood is quite good for um kindling i use it in my bee smoker so it's a nice kind right. of circular thing yeah. um so yeah so there's there's willows and then there's apples so i'm trying to do like a sort of a, a permaculture garden yeah um, bamboo for canes and yeah. make it kind of a bit that everyone's entitled to so it's a mm. common resource for okay. all the plot holders if they want to come and pick some willow or pick some apples or pick some raspberries and things people can and it's a bit of a bit of a shared shared space because oh, it's lovely. it's abandoned otherwise yeah wonderful so we're going or well, gareth's leading me down the uh, the windy path <laughs> at the back of his allotment <laughs> into the overgrown scrub where yeah. a couple of um couple of allotment plots just went completely to brambles this so. used to be an allotment plot yes. amazing <laughs> we yeah. are literally surrounded by brambles that are over my head yep. and it's not even like in yeah. full growth yet i know and when i got here um seven years ago eight years ago it was just rough grass yeah and you could you could literally oh. walk straight through this nature huh nature it's isn't just it amazing mad. I guess the wrens probably enjoy oh, living yeah. in amongst this, though. And, I mean, this is amazing habitat for bees, because when all of these brambles flower, mm. there's yeah. an amazing resource of black bramble pollen and nectar. And also, it's quite a protected space as it well. Is. So, you yeah. know, there's not children running around in front of the hive or anything like that. Yeah, and, so um, nestled in amongst this bramble jungle, yeah. you've got your, um, clearing. your bee yes. hive. And they're flying today. Oh wow! You can see their um, 
Do we yeah, have to be careful? Can, do it come from that fine. side? It's fine. You can come Ooh, from either yeah. side. Yeah, you look You look that side. I'll, I'll go the other side. So just don't go in front of the hive. Okay. We, oh, look at them. They're yeah, enjoying this They're warmth. really going for it. And you can see the... Um, you can see they've got um, bags pollen. of pollen yeah, on the, the back of their side. legs. There's some quite bright, bright sort of pale yellow pollen. I wonder what that, I wonder what that's from. But yeah, so that that's a really good sign because that means that they're rearing brood. So the queen is active. There's eggs. They're increasing their population, and yeah, things things are good. That is absolutely fascinating. I like the fact that some appear to be working harder than others. Like there's, there's some with very little pollen on their legs and then some yeah, that but, just look like they shouldn't even be able to take off. Yeah, but some of them will, will have gone to get water. Right. Some of them will have gone on cleaning flights and things like that. So, you know, there's all sorts. <gasps> is that... What? I think... Oh, is it's that a nurse, red no, no, it's... Uh, tortoiseshell. Tortoiseshell again. Lovely. Oh, they're so beautiful. Nice. Right. I think it's time to go and find Ben. Yes. And have a, a little Let's sit see down. Where he is. Okay, so we're back at the table and we've just had a slice of Gareth's delicious cake. And uh, yeah, just before we go and off and do our native plant of the week. And uh, we just wanted to say thank you very much, Gareth, for giving us the tour around today. Yeah, Thanks, guys. Thank it's been so much fun. It's looking really, really beautiful. And our native plant of the week, which we're going to go and talk about in a minute, is the nettle. And it's just, I thought I'd mention, there's quite a few nettles on your plot. In the, in the bit <laughs> out the back where they're supposed to be. Thank you for adding that, yes. I love a backhanded compliment. Yeah. But it must be beautiful, um, you know, all the butterflies coming in for the nettles in the summer. Yeah, it's fantastic. So one time when I, when I did, uh, when I cleared up the shed, I was clearing up in the roof space. Yeah. And I moved and I moved some tools and this all these dead peacock butterflies all these wings of these peacock butterflies oh. just fluttered down because they've been hibernating yeah. up there and having all these nettles is a brilliant brilliant resource yeah, for the butterflies what, have you well, seen it's... the caterpillars on them have you ever noticed they're, they are actually quite hard to spot you have to lift, yeah. turn over, under yeah. the, over they, the leaf they, they're quite sort of um, spiky looking fluffy ones mm. yeah, yeah. yeah. A job to do with gloves, isn't it? Searching yeah. for <laughs> yes, it is. in the nettles. Yeah, but the thing I notice on the most actually is ladybird larvae oh, and pupae. Nice. Yeah. yeah, so you see absolutely tons, and and that's you know it's really useful because out there you've got that kind of incubator of all these all these wonderful predators that will then come onto the plot and eat the aphids. I mean, I've not had an aphid problem in eight years. That's it, literally not even had to squish them there on the tour i just got this sense that, that your allotment's like an engine like it's almost finely tuned but it like you say it's not through entire you know over management it's just through letting mm. things sort themselves out yeah i think it takes a while um you know a year or two to kind of build a nice balance but um but yeah i hardly ever use slug pellets don't don't really get any pest and disease problems and right. that's because i think there's so many beneficial insects around that nature will just help but i think that's a, a really important part of organic gardening is that you you just have a bit of patience that's right you see <laughs> yeah. you see the aphids on your broad bean plants but if you have faith and you know mm-hmm. that something will come along and eat them generally it does yeah, we there, keep saying this. Don't panic. Yeah. Stop panicking, yeah. everyone. It's one of our number one tips, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. There was yeah. a lovely bit. Have you read um, Wilding by Isabella Tree? Oh, I absolutely loved that book. Do you remember the bit yeah. with um, when the creeping thistles completely invade the estate? Yeah. And then the, um, oh, what was it? Uh, was it Painted Lady? Painted There's lady, a massive yeah. migration of yeah. Painted Lady butterflies and the caterpillars just totally destroy it. Yeah. And that's just amazing, isn't it? Nature has kind of helped find a balance, um, which you would never... Because in the wild... You know, if you go for a walk around, it's not just 100% nettle everywhere. No. You know, nature finds a way of balancing Absolutely. itself. Mm. Yeah. And I would, I would like to say one thing about nettles um, in terms of wildlife gardening is if you've got a small garden, don't feel that you have to grow nettles. Oh, we, we do always say this as well. Totally agree with you. Because yeah. the countryside is full of nettles. And yeah. actually, they're yeah. a plant that is um, really well adapted to the disturbance and the kind of things that we do to the countryside yeah. like for example we put nitrogen fertilizer on the field that runs off into hedgerows that really really favors nettles so if you're trying to do a good thing for wildlife don't don't feel that you have to have a great big nettle patch yeah. in your garden yeah yep brilliant well i've had such a good morning thank yeah. you very much thanks thank Gary. on to the pub yeah, yeah. on to the pub <laughs> bye bye Right, 
right, so we're back in the studio now and we're going to continue with uh, today's topic, which is the stinging nettle, which we introduced briefly with Gareth on his allotment. But before we do that, we just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who's left a review of the podcast on iTunes. And we've really enjoyed reading all of them. It's been lovely. Thank you very much. Yeah, and hearing from people around the world as well. All around the world. Yeah, I don't know if we are going to have to extend our wildlife chat to, uh, you know, international <laughs> species. But anyway, um, yeah, thank you guys. That's really nice. But we thought we'd just read them out in a what we're calling a minute of self-congratulation yeah well it's 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 nice to give a shout out to everybody who's actually left a review so we thought we'd just share some of the feedback that we've had so last try for a nickname from canada said an easy to listen to information packed podcast designed to benefit the environment and specifically birds bugs garden animals and gardeners alike Ellie and Ben are sincere, knowledgeable, spontaneously funny. <laughs> Almost as if they like each other. <laughs> Almost. Mm. <laughs> Got the wrong end of the stick there, mate. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, you've left this one for me. Somebody called J-H-S-J-D-J-U. <laughs> That's not a name. I think it's pronounced good just Good just <laughs> Sorry if that's an actual name. Oh. Jeez. <laughs> um, anyway, they say, fantastic podcast. Love Ben and Ellie's chatter about all things gardening. It's great to listen to a podcast that gives both the science and practical advice for gardening, while also raising awareness of the many environmental issues our gardens are facing. Looking forward to listening to more. And I've got Twiggy in Canada, who says, I love this podcast. I've created a dead hedge, added bird feeders and some watering spots, and can hardly wait to hear what my neighbours think of No Mo May. Oh, that's brilliant. We're spreading No Mo May across the pond. Yeah, that's so cool. Great. Well, thank you very much for leaving those reviews. If you have left another one, then we'll read it out at some point in the next couple of weeks. And the iTunes reviews really help us get into the ears of new listeners. You can also leave us a review on Podbean, I should say, which is our podcast host. So yeah, either via Podbean or by iTunes it'd be lovely to hear from you yeah we look forward to it thanks so now on to the stinging nettle this is the first what you would call a weed that we're covering on uh, the native plant of the yeah, week isn't it we're normally trying to do garden worthy native plants yes That's what, yes so exactly. things that really look beautiful yeah so we are going to this is going to be a rare hiatus for us but well you often hear wildlife gardeners suggesting it don't you really more than suggesting i think everyone pretty much says leave a patch of nettles in your garden yeah exactly yeah we are covering nettles but you could also read for nettle dock ragwort yeah lots of other species as well that people often recommend leaving but which are also considered by other people a weed so we're not going to tell you whether it's a weed or a garden plant or not but we're just going to say why it is good for wildlife and we are going to give you some horticultural tips on how to grow it if you want. Interestingly, we also did choose this plant for this particular episode because we were talking to Gareth on his allotment. So it's a bit food oriented because he's a fantastic food grower. And probably me more than Ben, but I'm a really big fan of harvesting the tips of nettles to make nettle soup. So we sort of chose it along the vein of, well, it's good for wildlife, but also as humans, we can also benefit from the harvest that yeah. it can be. And it's packed full of iron like, i literally feel like superwoman when i've when i've eaten a bowl of <laughs> like nettle Popeye. soup that's what i mean Popeye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on to the nettle obviously its name is uh, stinging nettle or the common nettle but its latin is urtica dioica and the dioica bit comes from the word dioecious and as we will go on to in the sexual antics dioecious means it has separate male and female plants now all of you of course know what a, a nettle looks like but just a very brief description it's a herbaceous perennial which means it lives year after year and it dies down in the winter and comes back in the spring it can grow in certain places up to three meters tall i've that read that sounds terrifying it does <laughs> like a tree <laughs> i have seen them head height yeah it's when so they grow up through a hedgerow I, I find because they, they tend to use the the stems of other things as as a sort of support oh that's right so. especially through hawthorn um the whole plant is green pretty much the leaves can get to about 15 centimeters long but there's quite a bit of variation in the leaf shape and yeah the plant can be found growing any time pretty much between the early spring and the autumn frosts it spreads by seed and by rhizomes which are modified stems which grow underground and those rhizomes creep through the earth while the plant is growing through the summer and autumn. As anybody who's seen a stand of nettles knows, um, they can make these great big colonies. 
um, where not much else will grow. But apparently, it depends what you call it, but goose grass, or some people call it cleavers or sticky weed, you know, the stuff that you yeah. pick and throw onto the people. The stuff that grows impossibly fast when you turn your back on it for 30 seconds yeah, when you're trying right. to get hardened for someone else. Yeah. Oh, where'd you come from? <laughs> yeah, well, apparently it's really fast growing. It allows it to be one of the very few plants that can push its way up through a, a dense nettle patch. Oh, there you go. The thing we all know, of course, about stinging nettles, well, it's in the name, is the sting. The stinging hairs that they have around their leaves. And I thought I'd give you a brief description of how this sting actually works. So the stinging hair itself is a long cell. And it's about this cell is about 1.6 millimetres long. And it's made of a glass-like uh, cellulose wall. It's in the shape of a, a tapered shaft. But at the end, it's got a... Well, <laughs> it said it's got a, basically a brittle knob at the end. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, children. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and at the base of the the stinging cell yeah the base (laughs) of the knob is a soft bulb and that's got a a flexible liner again made of cellulose and that bulb contains the stinging fluid so when something puts pressure against this stinger the knob at the end breaks off and it leaves an extremely sharp hypodermic needle it's like you know chopping the top off a bottle or something like that you get that really sharp glass right at the end and it's that needle then which can puncture human skin really but as pressure pushes down onto the needle that bulb at the bottom which contains all the fluid it compresses and it squeezes the fluid up through the tube and the toxin comes up the needle and into whatever unfortunate bit of your body that has touched the nettle. I mean, I'm personally, I'm not afraid of being stung by stinging nettles. It happens all the time. I think I've just become quite immune to it almost. But that is terrifying as a description. <laughs> I think I'm actually going to develop a fear. I mean, hypodermic needles, <laughs> sh- that, all of it, just horrible. What? <laughs> <laughs> and I believe you if you hadn't previously said you actually quite like the feel of stinging nettles. Yeah, but that just makes me sound weird, so I was actually going to avoid saying that on this. Oh, I quite like this, actually. (laughs) It does leave a tingling feeling. No, okay, this is far too weird now. No, well, we'll come back on to this, because the Romans enjoyed that as well, apparently. Okay, good. And I do have a Roman nose, so maybe it's come from that. That's true. (laughs) So basically, aside from just being a pain, the point of the sting is to put off animals eating it really and it's quite effective at understanding when it needs to produce more of these stinging hairs in one study plants from uh, a grazed field being grazed by uh, well actually there's been several studies some being grazed by large animals by cows and horses and others by um, just rabbits and, and smaller animals like that so in one study plants from a grazed field were cut and when they regrew they had a higher stinging hair density then a different group from another field that weren't grazed. Almost like they're retaliating. Exactly. So they come back stronger if you cut them down or if they get grazed down, really. Despite all of that, though, some animals do actually have a go at them. And uh, yeah, so the seed can actually be um, transferred around in, in animal droppings. But it also, like I said, spreads by these, these creeping rhizomes that go underground. Naturally, sting nettles would grow on fairly nutrient rich but damp soils like a woodland edge or on river banks that have been grazed by animals so again the animals leave their manure behind basically and they also turn over the soil with their hooves which allows the seed to come up and stinging nettles are what are known as a ruderal species and ruderal species are early colonizers of disturbed ground so lots of species rely on this churning up of the hooves of animals in order to germinate as well. But human activity itself has also spread nettles far and wide. So now they can also be found in fens, um, scrub, uh, right through hedgerows, as Ellie has already said, in unmanaged grasslands, banks of rivers and streams, alongside road verges as well you see them um so all over the british countryside now and yeah humans have had a big part to play in that the stinging nettle urtica dioica is widespread 
in Europe. It's probably native throughout most of Europe, including Central and Southern Europe, down into the Mediterranean, and also through Central and Northern Asia. There are lots of other species that are very closely related, and I don't really have time to go into it, but there's some discussion about whether there's actually two species in Britain, um, or whether there's just these are just subspecies, like we've heard with other plants. But basically, yeah, the, the the nettle that we have in the UK is certainly spread right the way from the Arctic region, regions down uh, into the Mediterranean. In Britain, the highest place it's been found is 850 metres above sea level, and that's on uh, the Great Dunfell in Cumbria. But um, as with a lot of the plants we've covered in Europe, they are found much higher up. So in Spain, uh, they were found at two and a half thousand metres above sea level as well pretty big range again it also has a very wide range of soil types that it can grow in it does prefer sort of a fairly neutralish soil but it has been found in phs from 4.5 which is very very acidic um, to 7.5 which is alkaline and while it can grow in this wide range of habitats as i've said humans have played a big part in spreading it around and that's because although it can handle many different aspects and soil types what it really needs is a soil high in nitrates and in phosphates. It really doesn't grow well if there's low phosphates in the soil. The other thing is that phosphates are not very readily available in the soil as well and they tend to occur in higher uh, concentrations where there's been human activity. So we've been just been chucking out rubbish and that contains lots of phosphates in it. So this is a quote from one of the papers I read. They said, in Haley Wood which is in Cambridgeshire, um, nettle occurs on the site of a former gamekeeper's garden where the concentration of phosphorus is significantly higher than that in the rest of the wood, probably because of the addition of manure and rubbish by the gardener. Um, and in another example, there's a series of ex-Roman settlements along the Groveley Ridge, which is near Salisbury. And the whole area was overgrown by woodland you know since since well it's been 1600 years since the settlements were there but the patches which were actually settled by villages along this ridge um, have much denser nettle patches um, and that's because of the high levels of phosphate that um, Ooh, occurred because of the occupation yeah it's really interesting mm, yeah. and again we've mentioned that book before but the uh, history of the british countryside by Oliver rackham talks about all this stuff as well as Ellie's already said, nettles are really delicious. Um, they're said to have a high content of protein, but also of vitamins A and C, calcium, magnesium, and as Ellie said, iron. And they are really tasty. We've used them as a spinach replacement for all sorts of stuff, haven't we? Yeah, delicious. Love it. Yeah, uh, anything like spinach and ricotta cannelloni just did the, that with nettles just the tips though don't don't go taking like the whole stem otherwise you'll be chewing on that for days yeah and it's just that it's just the leaves this well the stems have been used to produce a fabric as well and also paper at some times they make quite a strong fiber so it's quite a good substitute for linen um, and actually in world war one they were used to make uniforms for the german army and in world war two the british used um, nettle just juice really to uh, dye their camouflage nets as well so lots of different uses i don't know if anybody out there's had a cheese called yarg cornish yarg yarg yeah. what's a pirate's favorite cheese yarg yeah <laughs> had to say it yeah <laughs> well if you've ever had it it's got a green casing on the outside and that's actually nettle leaves and it's a delicious cheese as well so you can get it all over the place i well recommend trying it and famously but probably apocryphally roman soldiers were said to rub nettles on their arms and legs to keep warm in the british climate and also to relieve aches and pains as well they just like the tingle yeah like me. exactly yep. <laughs> but now we're going to go on to the thing you are all waiting for of course which is the sexual antics of the urtica dioica the stinging nettle Right, so stinging nettle is a dioecious plant. And as we said at the beginning, that means there are separate male and female plants, which we haven't covered for a long time, have we? Because most of the plants we've been talking about have been hermaphrodite. So actually, you need both the male and the female plants to pollinate each other, and they are separate individuals. Flowers extend from points of the on the stem, which are called nodes. And if you see a, a nettle stem you'll see that there's a bit of clear stem 
and then there's a group of leaves and then another clear bit of stem and then another group of leaves and around these where these groups of leaves are that's the node and that's where the um, flowers come out of flowering takes place usually between may and august now flowers can be pollinated by small thrips and pollen beetles but more often nettles are thought to be wind pollinated I would have assumed that because the flowers do sort of dangle, which is usually an adaptation to aid wind pollination. They've got an adaptation where before the flower bud opens, the stamen, which hold the pollen, they're curved inwards and they're put under a lot of pressure within the flower bud. And when the flower bud opens, it allows the stamen to spring out and the act of springing out explosively scatters the pollen out into the air. Once a female plant is pollinated and produced seed, um, the seed is just either shed from the plant directly or it can actually remain on the dead stems right up to the end of the year in December or January and, you know, gets knocked over by the wind or as the plant dies back, the the, um, seeds are shed then. So in terms of wildlife, I'm going to talk about the classic ones in a minute, but there was one interesting one I found. Again, they are mostly wind-pollinated, so most of the um, the wildlife is after the leaves rather than the flowers. But one of the possible pollinators is a parasitic wasp called Diglyphus isaia, and it's a, a parasite of various leaf miners, which are little insects which crawl in between the layers of cells in between leaves and that's where they feed Um, and they can cause basically just unsightly patches on garden plants it is recorded as visiting nettle flowers but what's interesting is that this wasp you can actually buy as a biological control for chrysanthemum leaf miner and various tomato leaf miners too and i was just on one of the biological control websites and it's 35 pounds a pop for a for a for a small pot of these these wasps i swear where there's a problem in gardening there seriously is money to be made absolutely (laughs) wow yeah that's expensive just grow some nettles maybe to encourage it who knows? No, that's exactly right. Well, and this is a good time to say we're talking about biological controls in our next episode, actually, mm. of the podcast. Things are very complicated. But yeah, if you've got a problem with chrysanthemum leaf miner, say you're growing chrysanthemums on your allotment for show or something like that, then why not have a little nettle patch at the back of the allotment? It might be encouraging the exact parasitic wasp uh, that you need to deal with the problem. But coming on to some of the prettier species, the caterpillars of several species of butterfly, but especially the small tortoiseshell, the peacock, red admiral and comma, commonly or exclusively found on stinging nettles, particularly in the British Isles. Yeah, they actually, um, they can gather in huge conglomerations of caterpillars. I'm, I'm so desperate to find this this year. Let's go on a caterpillar hunt. Yeah, you definitely look them up. And like Ellie said, you get these massive populations of them. And sometimes they're covered in a sort of a, a silk tent as well. Yeah, really worth looking up. Now, aside from the butterflies, I was on one of the websites we use to find information for this podcast. And we go on to a, a database, which is called the Database of Insects and Their Food Plants. And this is a fantastic resource. And you can either search for individual species of insects or you can um, put in the name of a plant species and it will tell you every record of every species that has been uh, observed where part of um, that insect's life cycle is feeding on the plant actually is food so it's not going after it's not a pollinator it's not going uh, and pollinating the flowers it's actually eating that plant so i was on um, this database it's called dbif and i found over 120 entries for insects that are actually using nettle as a food and it just shows the amount of life that a nettle patch can actually harbor and of course if you have that many insects coming into a patch then there's going to be ladybirds coming after some of the smaller species that are feeding and lots of aphids eat nettles and those aphids themselves are eaten by blue tits and other woodland birds in the summer the late summer when the seeds is available many of the um, seed eating birds actually go after the seeds and nettles including house sparrows chaffinches and bullfinches as well Mm, that's interesting i don't i don't think i realized that at all I can't say I've seen it myself but it is well recorded and and nettles also attract lots of other species that eat the insects like hedgehogs and shrews frogs and toads so all through 
different times of the year, a nettle patch is absolutely fantastic for wildlife. Awesome. I was going to say it's also um, it's relatively undisturbed. So even if a creature isn't using it as their food source, because well, generally humans aren't tramping around in a huge stand of nettles, then there's just that lack of um, disturbance, which will also in- encourage more things, I imagine. But the question is, for you at home, whether you should grow it, really, and whether you should make a specific effort to have a nettle patch in your garden. Basically, what we think is, if you've got a very small garden and there are nettles near to you at home, then there's probably better uses of your garden space. I think our garden is a very good example of this. I know there are nettles very close by because... I pick them. Yeah, that's right. And our garden is very, very small. I think it would be, it would take up too much space that other things could be using, I I feel. Yes. Part of wildlife gardening is having a great diversity of things and having plants available throughout the year. So if you've got a really small space and you just end up with nettles, then you're not likely to have flowers really early in the year and you're not likely to have flowers really late in the year. But if you have a larger garden and you don't have lots of nettles nearby, then you get a massive bang for your buck with nettles. Like I said, over 120 different species of insects, plus all the associated species that eat those insects, rely on nettles as a food plant. Don't stick it right out of the way in the worst, shadiest corner, because if you're trying to attract those butterflies, they need the nettles to be in a fairly sunny position. I've seen people, a lot of people do that. They tend to think, oh, that's my nettle patch. That's where everything's going to happen for the wildlife. But actually, it's it's just going to be yeah unusable yeah and that's why we said at the beginning that you can take this advice and apply it to all the other things ragwort and docks and and different stuff like that because again people just think oh it's the wildlife area i'll put it in the shadiest worst area of the garden but that's not where the butterflies want to be and again the same is true for the day flying moth things like the cinnabar moth which go after the ragwort so if you are going to grow it make a special effort to to put it in a place that's actually going to be good for the wildlife and accessible to it and it seems a bit strange to talk about like the horticulture and the propagation of it but it is known that nettles do best in partial shade so they'll grow stronger and flower more in that partial shade but like i said because you want it to be sunny for the the butterflies maybe you don't want them to grow to their full size because as we've described they can be up to three meters high something (laughs) like that so perhaps again having them in full sun somewhere in your garden might actually restrict the size of them and so it seems a bit counterproductive but actually putting them in a shadier part of your garden might give you bigger nettles yeah it might actually be worse yeah they're gonna come for you basically yeah (laughs) so to grow them they're totally hardy and like i said they're perennial so they'll come back every year but they will die back in autumn frosts um one thing it really doesn't like is severe flooding of its roots particularly for a very long time so if your soil becomes completely sodden and a lake over winter maybe not the best thing to grow but pretty much everywhere else they should be fine to grow it at home i would probably just go out and collect seed if you go out in the early autumn shake uh, if you get a, a normal a4 sized piece of paper and just put on some gloves shake one of the the seed heads you know one of the old stems over this piece of paper and all the seeds will just drop and collect on that probably also some interesting insects as well if you're shaking the nettles onto a piece of paper well that's basically what the ecologists well, do yeah. just in a fancy way they put take these a, big sheets out and take, shake take stuff. A, if you're really keen take a mag- magnifying glass out there when you're doing it as well yeah that's a great idea yeah I would collect these seeds up, then I'd sow them straight away into the area that you've already set aside for nettles, and I'd just rake them in lightly, and then just leave them to it. They will germinate either that autumn or the following spring, and you'll have a nettle bed in no time. Alternatively, of course, I'm sure there's no shortage of neighbours digging up nettles out of their gardens, (laughs) so you can always take one that somebody else has got and because they spread by these rhizomes that creep underground you can just plant a couple of um, plants that somebody else has weeded out just a short couple of inches of root should do it i think like mint (laughs) yeah that's true because you can can just take small sections (laughs) of this root and, and stick it in they're absolutely fantastic for wildlife but as we've described if you don't have the space for them then don't feel guilty it's more important to have things flowering all through the year 
Right. Well, that concludes today's episode. I feel like it was a well-traveled one. Peterborough, some woods back at home. Um, yeah, hopefully the beginning of many more excursions to go and interview interesting people because you don't want to just hear us week after week after week (laughs) (laughs) yes no thank you very much for the reviews as i said i can i just make one correction of something i said in the last podcast because i only listened to it about a week after ben does all the editing and it turns out i said night scented moths instead of (laughs) night flying moths or possibly <laughs> night scented plants. Like, I think I just got them mixed up, basically. I'm not suggesting there are some nicely scented moths out there. That you sneak out at night to sniff out. Not as far as I know. I might try now. Who knows? As usual, get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. Things you're up to, things that you've implemented that we've recommended, questions you have as well. We're actually planning on answering some questions on the podcast. When we get to 20 questions in our question bag, we will do a special bonus episode as a q a yes yep. brilliant. so send in your questions you can do that on twitter we are at the wild gdn or on facebook which is facebook.com forward slash the wildlife garden podcast and we also have an email address which is the wildlife garden at hotmail.com yes yeah, so please do get in touch and we always love to hear from you that just leaves me to say that the next podcast is going to be on beneficial predators as we said earlier and also cow parsley which is in flower right now and looks fantastic so we'll be talking all about that lovely so until the next time keep gardening bye Bye.